Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the SD Advisor podcast. This week, we examine the prospects for the UK economy after Brexit, the pandemic, and all of the other things that we've got to worry about in the world. I'm David Thorpe, Special Project Editor at SD Advisor. The UK market has been acutely out of favour for, for many years now, with investors tending to favour global funds, multi-asset funds, indeed almost anything except the domestic market. And this at a time of heightened political and economic uncertainty. This podcast is sponsored by Schroders. Joining me today to discuss the topic of the UK market in the years ahead are Hugh Gimber, Global Market Strategist at JP Morgan, Duncan McInnes, who jointly runs the Russell Investment Company, and a duo of UK equity fund managers from Schroders, Bill Casey and Nick Kisak. Thank you all for joining me today. Hugh, is the UK equity market doomed by the types of companies listed on it? Companies whose business models in areas such as big oil, mining and high street retail are under perhaps structural challenge and maybe in structural decline. Does this mean that the FTSE 100 will forever underperform? Well, I think you can break that question down into two parts, really. So the first part would be, are there good opportunities to be had within the UK market today? And there I would say absolutely. I think particularly there are companies that are benefiting at the moment from some of the strongest parts of the UK economy. So you take the house builders as an example there, benefiting from a very robust UK property market. Some really exciting opportunities to be had. I do think, however, there's another part of your question, which is, is the FTSE 100 really the best way to access the UK market? And that, for me, is more up for debate. If you look at why the market's underperformed this year versus other regions, it's not been about the UK economy for me. It's not been about the political noise in the background. It's come down to the sector composition. And so financials and energy, two of the worst performing sectors this year, were also two of the three largest sectors in UK benchmarks as we came into 2020. So, of course, we shouldn't expect this year's sectoral winners to keep winning forever. And I'm sure we can come on to this, but I do think that the catalysts for a rotation in market leadership are starting to appear. Uh, but given some of the structural forces at play, particularly some of the long-term headwinds for the energy majors, I think investors are right to question whether the FTSE 100 is the best vehicle to access UK equities today. Thank you. Hugh, um, in your role as a market strategist at JP Morgan, you get to, uh, you get to look across the globe, I guess, and across the asset classes. Do, do you feel that the, uh, the FTSE 100 will forever be out of favour or will those companies... Yeah, but, uh, I don't think it will be forever out of favour, but I think you need to be in a different macroeconomic environment for the FTSE 100 uh, to outperform. So you need to be in one where global growth is stronger, perhaps where uh, government bond yields are rising, lending uh, a bit more help to the financials, one where commodity prices are improving as well to give some support to the energy sector. Uh, and so, as I say, I think you can start to see the catalysts for that type of move, perhaps linked to the US election outcome, perhaps linked to progress on a vaccine over the next few weeks. You can see where those signposts could be, but at this stage, identifying the timing of that still looks quite challenging. Thank you. Um, Nick, as a UK equity manager at Schroders, you, uh, well, you have to look at the UK market, but do you find yourself increasingly looking outside the FTSE 100 and further down the market cap scale to escape from all of that negativity that seems to be gripping the FTSE 100? 
Absolutely. We do find ourselves moving down the, the market cap uh, spectrum. You know, I think more than half of our fund is in kind of the mid cap space. And, you know, for sure, we do have a handful of, you know, international equities in the mandate in the fund. But but by and large, really, um, you know, our fund is UK listed stocks. And you know, maybe just taking the original question and stepping back kind of, you know, 50 years or stepping back, big, big picture. You know, if you, if you map, you know, the UK all share or the UK three, FTSE 350 and you put it relative to, you know, global equities and you put it in US dollars, the UK market in relative terms in dollars is, is, at, is at the lowest it's been in 50 years, early 70s. And that's been especially concentrated. That drop has been especially concentrated in the last 10 years and particularly in the last five or six years. Um, you know, and we talked about regions there, Hugh and Duncan mentioned regions there, but we've, you know, again, bigger picture. We've had the longest bear market in commodities, seven years in oil, um, you know, in metal, six, seven years now until this year. Um, so I guess the question there is, do we think there's never going to be inflation again? Um, despite all this money printing and promises of stimulus, now, do we think there's never going to be inflation again? And, and, and as well as that, you know, the oil sector, the energy sector within the benchmark, you know, was 18% in 2011. It's now 6%. You know, the mix, you know, this COVID has kind of accelerated a lot of things this year. You know, the second thing is, you know, value. And we know that there's more value weight in the UK market. You know, value and interest rates. We're in a negative real interest rate environment, you know, interest rates after inflation. Um, and, you know, when you're in that environment, the, the valuation the market puts on growth or, you know, future revenues is, is inflates uh, uh, and continues to do so. The question is, do you think interest rates can fall much more? If your question is, is that does the UK, um, you know, sort of underperform, for, for, underperform forever? And then and we haven't talked about Brexit yet, but, you know, about a third of the revenues of the all shares in the UK, you know, it's, it's still a minority. Um, but I think that there's sort of a secondary impact that's, you know, in this underperformance in the last five or six years anyway, is the aversion of sterling. And from, a, from an international investor's point of view, you know, we've had huge outflows of UK equities. It's this aversion of sterling and four years waiting for a Brexit deal. You know, there is a, you know, there's, you know it isn't just its, its, its value, its oil, its commodities. You know, that's a lot smaller now anyway. You know, COVID has accelerated these three things uh, this year. Um, you know the decline of value, the decline in the commodity markets, and um, and of course you know the, the sensitivity over currencies and economies and Brexit. So it's all it's almost like the perfect storm this year for UK. And it, it isn't just about the value mix. There is a UK discount. You know there is. You know you look at you look at private equity are buying up the UK listed market. You know in the last few years, left, right, and centre. You know, but when you look at equity risk premiums, you look at dividend yields. You know dividend yields been twice what it is in the US. You know, even like for like, stocks are cheaper in the UK, um, sector by sector, very similar businesses. There, there is a UK discount. Um, I think it's, it's, it's partly to do with that third part is the subversion of sterling. Thank you, Bill. That's great. Um, Duncan, I know that Ruffer have a particular uh, view of the world in, in terms of, well, outlook for inflation and in terms of um, equity market valuations. Um, on the Ruffer Investment Trust at the moment, how are you looking at, um, how are you looking at the UK? 
Thanks, first of all, thanks for having me, David. I would echo a lot of what Bill, Bill and uh, Hugh just said. We've got we've got a big waiting to the UK at the moment. In fact, it's about forty to forty five percent of our overall equities. We don't have a very large equity weighting uh, in the portfolio, but a large part of the equities are made up by the UK. And I think your your question, will the FTSE 100 underperform forever? Uh, it's, it's an absolutely fair question based on the performance each year and the scale of the underperformance that Bill highlighted. Um, but it probably would have been a better one to ask a few years ago. You know, as of today, I think a lot of the pessimism around the perfect storm uh, of, of, of politics and economics uh, that the UK has gone through it is now reflected in the price. So sectoral biases in the UK have been a driver of the underperformance because we just don't have in the FTSE uh, the sort of companies that investors have wanted in this cycle. Furthermore, we have an emphasis on what are debatably structurally challenged industries like retail um, and we have other industries that have probably fallen on the wrong side of the ESG debate. But the way that we think about markets at, at Ruffer, uh, we think in terms of um, economic regimes. And we've spent the last 30 or 40 years in, a, in an economic regime which has been dominated by falling interest rates, falling inflation, and pretty benign and positive economic and geopolitical outcomes. We think that we are moving into a new regime, and that will be one of higher inflation and more volatile economic and geopolitical outcomes. And through that prism, the sector makeup of the UK actually looks, looks pretty good, as does the rule of law that the UK offers compared to a lot of the rest of the globe. So the UK itself looks quite attractive when you think about commodities, uh, property and banks in that new, more inflationary world. Thank you. And Duncan, just to, to uh, continue uh, with you for the, the, the next question, um, it, it's a quirk of, of the UK market that uh, quite often when, when sterling uh, rises, uh, the FTSE 100 falls, um, and, and that's because of, as Bill mentioned earlier, the preponderance of overseas earnings. But Duncan, to what extent is your substantial weighting to UK equities um, a reflection of a view on sterling? Uh, yeah, that that is a, a good and important question. Um, so it, it's it's not really. We're actually focused on we're focused on domestic businesses with the the equities that we hold. So that's uh, UK banks, it's UK property, it's Tesco. Um, in terms of global focus, uh, really, Ocado I think is probably the the only one that's a global global player. Uh, but but the sterling impact on on UK equities is very important. Uh, I'm sure the, the specialists. In, in Bill and Nicholas will tell me if I'm wrong, but I think about half or more than half of the, the FTSE 100's earnings come from overseas because they're global businesses. So weak sterling, which is what we've had, um, has actually aided those companies' profitability. But the way that we're looking at that is that weak sterling has also created an opportunity for private equity and foreign companies to come to the UK and uh, and pick up uh, pick up some bargains. So we've seen it over the last couple of years, and even in 2020, uh, with all that's going on, we've seen a lot of a lot of M&A, um, and, and I think that's a trend that's likely to continue. Thank you, uh, Bill or Nicholas. How, how do you how do you do you see sterling? If if uh, if sterling falls 10% on Monday, what do you do in a UK fund, Nicholas? Yeah, I'd, I'd echo David. I'd echo what Hugh said in the sense of. 
It's just over 70% of the Fertility 100's earnings that are derived from overseas. And so clearly sterling, you know, any sterling fall of, call it 10%, has a very strong short-term influence uh, on the on the FTSE 100's earnings. Uh, and obviously a 10% fall would, would translate broadly into a 7% benefit to, to sterling earnings. However, to, to echo what uh, Hugh was saying is that um, what we see is actually the implications within, from a, from a sectoral basis, can actually be a lot stronger. So, for example, under a strong sterling regime, um, to, echo, to echo Duncan's point, what you'd see is this would be a boon for, for domestic UK equities, particularly those that have strong non-sterling cost bases, such as the UK clothing retailers and the airlines, um, where, for example, they may have much of their um, clothing textile sourcing or jet fuel in, in US dollars. And so strong sterling in that in that respect can be a very strong benefit for, for certain sectors in particular. Um, in contrast, you know, strong sterling is clearly a negative for ex- the exporters as it can impact the demand that we see from um, for, for their products through their price competitiveness, as well as the negative translation effect that we have on those overseas earnings. Um, interestingly, does it mean that strong sterling uh, strong sterling translates? immediately into a negative uh, performance for the UK market. Not necessarily, because I think at the moment what you've seen over the last few years post the Brexit vote is there's obviously been a strong negative correlation between the two. And we've been, the market's put a, effectively a kind of risk premium on on the UK market and, and the, correlate, the negative correlation between the two. I guess the, there's an argument that actually if we do get some sort of free trade agreement and, and a resolution of Brexit in some shape or form, that actually you could see both correlate well together and, and, and a kind of reversal of what we've seen over the last few years, i.e. strong UK equities even in the face of strong sterling. Um, so there is, in our mind, there is uh, every chance that actually you could see a reversal in, in the correlation that we've seen since the original referendum vote in 2016. Thank you. Uh, I just going to add quickly to this is Bill. Sorry to add quickly to Nick's point. Um, you know, if you look at the correlation between the two, you know, glo- glo- um, FTSE uh, relative to global equities and sterling, you know, there was periods where they didn't correlate very much. Quite long periods, 03 to 06, 2010 to 2015. You know, generally periods when you know the UK was doing relatively well. Um, you know, the correlations has really kicked up and sustained. It's been quite a, a special period, really, since since Brexit, and, and, and the correlations have been so high. So, you know, to Nick, just to echo Nick's point, very good point he made there, is that if things turn uh, for the economy and we get this free trade agreement, that correlation could could really drop away. Thank you, um, Hugh. You've mentioned how you see um, the UK equity market at the moment. To, to what extent is um, the outlook for sterling one of the one of the considerations for you i think it has to be a consideration but as a couple of people have mentioned really i think when i look at the relationship between sterling and the uk market it matters much more and much more consistently for the different parts of the market that are going to outperform so if you're trying to make a call on the uk versus the rest of the world or just the overall uk index level i don't think the direction of sterling is that helpful it's not that instructive because what matters is why the pound is moving, why it's strengthening or why it's weakening. Uh, and we've seen good periods over history where, in fact, you've seen both moving in the same direction. 2017 being a good example where you have a 10% rally in the pound, 
and very strong performance from the FTSE All Share in the same year. So that relationship between domestic versus internationally focused stocks in the UK, I think, is very um, strong and that link to the pound, but less so about the UK versus the rest of the world. Thank you. Duncan, um, is the is the FTSE 100 now best thought of really as, a, as an income investors market? Um, biggest companies or many of the biggest companies in the FTSE 100 are things with, with pretty decent uh, yields. Of course, it's a function of the falling stock price, but is that really how we should think about it? There's not... Well, historically, um, you know, looking back over, over decades, the UK has always been more of an income market than, than elsewhere. Um, but, it, but at the moment, that is probably a particularly painful question for, for listeners, because this year proved that uh, dividends and an attractive dividend yield are, are not as secure as you might as you might think. At the headline index level, we, we've been worried about the, the FTSE 100 having an unsustainable uh, level of payouts uh, for, for quite some time because it relies upon uh, the, the dividends in the index rely upon highly leveraged utilities, on, on banks, retailers, and of course on volatile uh, commodity companies. So it always looked a little bit precarious. Um, but from today, um, with the opportunity to rebase dividends for a lot of those companies, um, we also think that there's, an, there's an awful lot of very attractive dividend yields on offer in companies that have pretty good businesses and importantly, the strong balance sheets, which give you the comfort that the dividend will actually be paid. And what I'm thinking about is Tesco or, or Land Securities at the sort of FTSE 100 level. And then in the smaller company space, there, there's there's a lot of opportunity for attractive, sustainable dividends. Hugh, um, do you see the, the FTSE 100, the FTSE 100 or indeed a, um, the, as a market that can have um, a role in a growth investor's portfolio or is it really just an income haven? No, I think there is an opportunity for capital appreciation in the UK. Um, and I think that's particularly the case today when you have the valuation being so beaten up relative to other regions around the world. So if I look at the, the 12 month forward PE ratio on the UK market, typically you've traded at about a 10 to, uh, 10 to 15% discount to develop market stocks. Um, over the past 30 years or so. And that discount today, rather than being that 10 to 15% average level, it's more like 30%. So I think there is clearly the potential for UK stocks to re-rate, the potential for capital appreciation as well as income. But I think the factors that would drive that kind of re-rating would come, first of all, through that change in market leadership that we've spoken about. Second of all, about the UK economy playing catch-up where I think it's lagged quite badly over the course of the summer, uh, and then that greater political clarity that gives international investors some more confidence in returning to the UK market. Thank you. Bill, um, do you yeah. what role do dividends play in your, in your thinking? And when you look at a FTSE 100 stock, do you kind of think maybe, you know, there's not a lot of growth there, but I can get the dividend until the growth comes? I think um, yeah, just from an index level, you know, we talked about equity risk premium being elevated right now. You know, you look at the dividend yield of the FTSE, you know, sort of steady state dividend yield. Maybe this year is probably not the, you know, there's been a lot of dividend cuts. Well, there's been a lot of dividend cuts everywhere. Um, but, you know, 44%, I think it is the dividend yield premium to Europe. And, you know, it's less than half the dividend yield of, of the US now. 
people will say, obviously, there's a lot more growth uh, in the US, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, that, that's quite extreme versus, versus history. Um, you know what we're you know you look at you look at stock to stock almost you know your Unilever to a Nestle you know Unilever is on three and a half percent yield versus Nestle on two and a half or a Relix on three percent Walters Kluver on one point eight you know in the Netherlands you know even some of the mid cap stocks particularly the domestic mid caps you know growthy mid caps in the UK you know you can get you know you can get a decent kind of three four percent yield you know which is kind of fairly unheard of in, in Western markets globally for, for that kind of growth. But um, what we do in the fund, maybe, you know, just to do, because we're kind of living and breathing it every day, stock by stock, and how we build a 30-stock fund, um, you know, we've got a lot of mid-cap growth, obviously, in there. You know, there's a lot of lot, lot of very good um, UK mid-caps. But when it, when it comes to large caps, we tend to try and focus on quality, on leaders in their industry, strong balance sheets, Divvy's in the kind of three to four percent range. That's where we really, that's where we sort of populating our fund. Um, quite reliable, still at a sort of, you know, probably 20, 25, 30 percent, you know, discount on, on that basis to, 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 to the similar stocks in, in, in Europe and, and even more so in the US. So that's, you know, I, I'm not saying you need to go out and buy a, an insurance company on 12 percent yield or whatever, you know, there is very, very attractive stickers but just dependable yield in the uk there's a lot of it and you know it's 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 back to that my first point on this on this uk discount this like sure. for like uk discount that exists thank you um Hugh, one of the things that i guess people who, who aren't in our industry uh talk about a lot and think about a lot is uh, levels of uh, government debt and obviously the uk has been borrowing much more and to historic levels, really. Um, and also, there's quite a, a lot of uh, household debt in the UK. But to what extent uh, does government debt matter anymore to um, an investor looking at uh, the UK equity market? Um, obviously, this debt is being borrowed at very, very low levels. But, but it, should it be a consideration? Yeah, so I think on that one, what matters here is the government's ability to spend on the UK economy. Um, and so part of that is going to be driven by the level of debt, but then you have to think about the borrowing cost that's being applied. So this question is not so much just about the debt level, it's more about the cost of servicing all of that debt, which is going to be a function of the debt level and the cost of borrowing. And when you look at the UK bond market today, the UK government can borrow for up to six years at negative interest rates. You can borrow for 10 years at 0.3%. Um, so for me, this is a big, really key factor uh, when you're thinking about the UK government's ability to spend, that they have access to all of this incredibly cheap financing. And that's why this relationship between the Treasury and the Bank of England is so important. You've had the Bank of England buying around £300 billion or so of UK gilts this year, and that's pretty similar, actually, to the amount of new government bond issuance that you've had coming from the Treasury. So in answer to your question, do high government debt levels matter? Well, they're a factor, but actually it's about borrowing costs rather than just debt levels that are going to be more important. Thank you. Um, I know that you're, you mentioned earlier you're, uh, the rougher view that we're probably going to have uh, higher inflation in, in the UK. Um, is, is that partly a function of you anticipate much higher uh, government spending? And if so, what would that mm -hmm. be for investors? Yeah, um, 
I, I think we do. I mean, debt, unsustainably high government debt levels, or perhaps they are sustainable, but high government debt levels are a global problem rather than just, just a UK problem. And we think that the solution to the problem of too much debt and too little growth, which has been uh, the case since the financial crisis, will be inflation. And that will be a global solution um, too. Equities might be uh, one way that, that investors can protect themselves from, from the ravages of inflation. But unfortunately, as with everything in finance, it's not quite as simple as that. There is, there's a lot of academic work which suggests that once inflation gets above 4%, for example, uh, that causes price to earnings multiples to contract pretty dramatically. And we think above 4% is probably exactly where the government would like to get inflation to. They'll just never, never admit it. So our solution to protect against inflation um, is, is gold and, and index-linked bonds. But you could also own cheap stocks which have uh, real assets or the ability to pass on inflation via pricing power. And that leads us to things like house builders, the oil majors, uh, and Tesco as well, for example. Thank you. Nicholas, uh, when you're putting together your your uh, portfolio, um, you're obviously thinking about inflation rates in the future, maybe about growth rates in the future. To, to what extent is, is government debt levels something that's in the mix uh, for you? Yeah, I think um, David. I think it's something that to, to echo what uh, Hugh and Hugh and, and Duncan have said. You know, we obviously we're conscious that debt levels globally are very high. I think when we look at the UK, including this year's extra spending to, to obviously counter the COVID issues, we're at around 100% debt to GDP in the UK now. If I look globally, we've got Japan, obviously, that's been stuck at around 200% for. For, for many years now, and in, within Europe, I think the UK's debt to GDP level is something like the second lowest, um, other than Germany, who, who, who obviously still maintains a very strong fiscal position overall. Um, so, does it, is it a concern to us? No, not particularly. I think at the end of the day, to, to, to echo Hugh's point, um, we, we think about the sustainability of that, and, and what it comes down to for us is. You know, one, the global growth outlook, which, you know, is obviously clearly has a read to, to the UK economy, given its, its global presence, as well as the productivity of, of the UK economy and, and its ability to, to meet uh, those interest costs. But it's not something that Bill and I give, um, give a strong amount of thought to in terms of our portfolio construction. And, and just as an aside, I think we also believe that in our in our fairly new chancellor in Rishi Sunak, we actually have somebody who, who understands both the necessity of maintaining fiscal prudence, but also understands how markets work. And, and this gives him a fairly holistic view and, and ability to manage that, that debt balance. Thank you. Um, that's great. Duncan, you've mentioned um, uh, Ruffer has a, a pretty substantial exposure to the UK at the moment. Um, but um, what, what, what's that exposure like, Duncan? Um, in outside the outside the FTSE 100 in mid and small cap land, is that somewhere that you're um, that you're also um, interested in? Yeah, absolutely. I think if if you want a contrarian, out of favour idea, then UK small and mid cap companies are the most downtrodden sector in the most downtrodden global market, arguably. 
So you, you could look at a, a whole bunch of, of UK small and mid, mid company uh, funds or investment trusts, and they're down 20 to 40% uh, so far this year. And, and the reason that, that small and mid caps have done so badly, I think, is that is that fund manager mergers uh, and liquidity scandals, uh, as we've seen in the last couple of years, have driven up everyone's minimum investable level to the point where nobody even wants to take a meeting with a company that's a hundred million market cap. Uh, and and further, I think the sentiment in the sector is revealed by by the fact that there's been a few investment trusts launched or, or, or um, tried to launch in the last few months to take advantage of what we think are amazing opportunities in the sector, but they've not been able to to raise the capital to, to do it. So you've got you've got these UK listed businesses at the smaller end where potentially the the, the price to earnings multiple is not that different to the dividend yield uh, for for pretty boring dependable businesses with with decent balance sheets. Um, so yes, you know, so to pick out some single names, something like Belvoir Lettings or Finsbury Foods look, look really, really good to us. We've also looked at, uh, uh, and this is not something we do often, but buying a basket of um, investment trusts on, on large discounts to NAV because they have a quadruple discount. The UK discount, the value discount, the small cap discount, and then the, the actual discount to NAV themselves. So yes, uh, in summary, uh, I'm very excited by the prospect of, of UK and smaller companies. Thank you. Um, Bill, I know you, you mentioned earlier that your, your fund has uh, quite quite a lot of um, um, mid, mid, mid and, and small in there. Um, is, is there an issue with um, basically not, no one wants to look there and, and uh, funds can't buy stuff right down at the bottom end of the market? Is that where you're seeing the opportunities? Yeah, I mean, I think everything Duncan said there rings in my ears. Has been correct, you know. There's there's so many layered upon discounts. There's, you know, we I, we've got stocks in the fund. That, you know, a couple of those, um, you know, the, the the PM mergers and the liquidity scandals that you know that they've just gone down for no reason, even on good news, you know, because it's it's a, something's been liquidated. Um, layer on top of that, you know, four years of Brexit, which you know, you know, back to what I said at the start, you know, there's this sort of um, is is sterling a hard currency or is it not? You know, of course it is, but you know, the, you know, from, from outside in, it it it's it, it's it's certainly on in international investors' mind as a question mark. You know, do they want this this exposure? Um, but no, absolutely. You know, this year, I mean, this year feels like sort of an almost a kind of a regime change starting in the stock market. You know, where you've had a real big flush out, uh, particularly in the value end of things. You know, small caps that, you know, when the small and mid caps outperform, they outperform, you know, when, when you sort of, with a sort of risk on cyclic, they tend to be a bit more cyclical or how they behave, you know, and then they, they, they're beneficiaries of, of liquidity, you know, and uh, we have liquidity for sure, but the first two, um, you know, we haven't had sort of a proper risk on market, um, a cyclical kind of market for, you know, since probably 2016, we had a, had a, had a briefly, um, it's been a really sort of defensive growth, growth at any price type market. And, you know, so, you know, UK mid caps sort of, I think, you know, again, what Duncan said there is exactly right. It fall, sort of fall between the cracks. You know, it was, it was, it was for me and Nick this year, kind of back in March, April, it was, it was really like, I think I, I said it to Nick, you know, this could be once in a career or at least once in a decade chance to buy some of these stocks. Um, you know, so cheaply, some of these really good stocks that, 
you know, had gotten maybe a little bit expensive. They always looked a bit expensive um, you know, to step in and, and, and start to take a position. You know, there's, the, the, you know, there's, there's, you know, I can name a few stocks, two, two stocks in our fund. Maybe I can mention one is Unite Group, which is a student accommodations um, developer and, and owner. You know, it's just fantastic. It's, it's the biggest player in a consolidating market. The structural growth drivers there, demographics, um, the attraction of the UK as a, as a, you know, relative to other parts of the world, in English-speaking parts of the world, as a destination for, you know, Asian students. Um, you know, there's layer upon layer of of growth um, drivers in the next decade, and that's a stock of trade on a discount to book. Um, you know, uh, uh, again, you know, there's a moratorium on the dividend. I think they'll reinstate it later in the year. You're talking about a four plus yield when that comes back, and you're talking high single digit growth. Um, you know, another one, Breeden is a name we own, which is is a, is a domestic based uh, aggregates player. Um, so, so, so basically, for for paving roads, and you know, very much in the kind of uh, the Red Wall North and, and Midlands in the UK, which is this is sort of a leveling up theme. We can see you know, that's been a stock that's been, you know, it's, it's very well run, good returns. Um, you know, it's it's benefiting from a consolidating, which is a good market in the UK and aggregates, unlike parts of Europe. You know, and, and it's just way too cheap. Um, and I think you know, part of the reason is back to what Duncan mentioned there is there's been selling pressure because of funds being closed. All of these, these sort of UK mid cap, small cap, and value oriented funds are just just being shut. There's very you know it's ex- becoming extinct, and there's this sort of constant overhang. And some of these great businesses, the great management teams, and growth, and you know, pl- you know, just just like could there's, there's five or six of these names that we bought earlier in the year and are, you know, still topping up. It just, you know, it, it's, it's been a great year for having a slightly longer term time horizon. Thank you. Um, David, if, David, if I can just, sorry, it's Nick, if I can just add to that, to, to Bill's comments, I think, I don't think we should underestimate quite how out of vogue the UK market and, and particularly below the top 50 mega caps in the UK, how out of vogue for asset allocators uh, and obviously, this points the UK domestics um, primarily below that that kind of top FTSE 50. When you look at the Merrill Lynch Fund Manager Survey, for example, it still remains at record lows over a kind of 20, 25 year history in terms of the asset allocators' uh, allocation towards UK equities. And so, to 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 build to echo the points already made. You know, were we are we to once we get the, the factors in place, i.e., we get some sort of Brexit resolution, free trade agreement, we get some sort of shift towards uh, towards value that favours the composition of the UK market, um, and we get PMIs moving in the UK PMIs moving in the right way, then then these some of these UK small mid caps are very very attractive on on any sort of valuation measure. Thank you. Um, Hugh, from a sort of big picture, top-down perspective, um, how do you think about and, and small cap um, at the moment in the UK? Sure. From a, a top-down perspective, I think there are two main factors here. So the first is the strength of the economic recovery in the UK, and the second is the pound. And so for me, the two main issues that are going to drive those factors over the coming weeks are how quickly we get progress towards the medical solution, um, to help the country um, recover and then sort of move on past COVID-19. And then clearly the Brexit negotiations are going to be key to 
the direction of the currency as well. So I think you can quite clearly see a path towards a scenario where you get that small and mid cap outperformance. But at the moment, really, we're calling for, for balance across large and small and UK portfolios because that path towards small and mid cap outperformance is still tied to some fairly binary events that are coming in the next few weeks. Thank you, Hugh. Um, and thank you to Duncan McGuinness from Ruffer Investment Company, uh, Hugh Gimber from JP Morgan Asset Management, uh, Bill Casey from Schroders, um, and tune in next time for another edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Thank you. You know that project you've been working on, just chipping away at it, dreaming of the day you get to show it off? Then, when you're least expecting it cancer and finishing that project actually happens i would know i've been restoring this car for years and today i'm giving it to my granddaughter it's her 16th birthday and two years since my cancer diagnosis happy birthday boo boo you keep making plans visit ohiohealth.com slash keep making plans to learn more